Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to Psalm 136? Psalm 136 is perhaps, perhaps one of the most interesting psalms in the whole book of Psalms. I realize it's dangerous to make a statement like that in such a great book. But Psalm 26 repeats the phrase, For his mercy endureth forever, 26 times in 26 verses. It is the psalm of God's mercy. It is thought that this psalm was recited every day in the Temple of Solomon as a reminder that the reason that they could worship in that sacred place was only because of the mercy of God as a recounting of the goodness of God to the people of Israel. The repetition of this phrase that is seen at the conclusion of every verse is like a refrain or a chorus of a song. And clearly it's the main theme of this entire psalm, for his mercy endureth forever. When God repeats something twice or three times, it is very significant. When God says something over 26 times, He is making a point that He wants deeply ingrained into our minds and hearts. Tonight, indeed, the mercy of God endureth forever. We are sometimes tempted to forget the mercy of God, to doubt the mercy of God. But let us tonight... Cling to this promise that God's mercy endureth forever. In the first four verses, we find a declaration of God's enduring mercy as the psalmist cries out and commands us to give thanks. He says we ought to give thanks unto the Lord. It is in the imperative voice. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. It is an exclamation. It is an emphasis It is the idea that we are required, commanded, expected to give thanks to God. Indeed, giving thanks to God changes our perspective of the circumstances that are before us. We are often tempted to look at the circumstances of life in a negative way. We look at them sometimes with eyes of doubt and fear with concern about what God is up to, but if we'll change our perspective and give thanks unto the Lord, we will find that, in fact, the Lord is good. We'll return to that thought in just a moment. This declaration is based upon the premise of the repeated phrase that God's mercy endures forever, a thought which we will also return to in just a moment. But as you notice, the important declaration that is made here of God's enduring mercy, he is referred to with several titles in the first four verses. First of all, he is called the Lord. He is Jehovah. He is the self-existent one. This is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush when he said, I am that I am. He was declaring his existence, the fact that he always has been and always will be. This is the God whose mercy endures forever. The reason 
that His mercy endures forever is because He endures forever. Not only is He the Lord, but He is called here in verse 2, the God of gods. This does not mean that the Jewish people, the Israelites, worshipped other gods or thought that there were other legitimate gods. It simply is calling attention to the fact that there are other gods that are worshipped by men, but our God is superior to them all. He is the God of gods. There is none that is above him. He is a good God. He's also called in verse 3, the Lord of lords. He is the master of all masters. He is the one who exercises his sovereignty and his supremacy in the world in which we live. He exercises his sovereignty in the in eternity. He's the God who is untouched by the circumstances of life. Not only is he called the Lord, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, but he also is called in verse 4, as the one, him, who alone doeth great wonders. And the idea here is that God is able to do miraculous, marvelous things. And he is the only one who can do those things. He stands apart in his power, in his omnipotence. There is none like him. So because of the fact that he is the Lord... He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. And he is the one who does great wonders in this world. We're reminded that we ought to give thanks to him for two reasons, which we've mentioned. One, he is good. Make no mistake about it. Our God is good. His name, God, means good. I do realize there are times that we struggle with accepting that God is good. I just started reading the book of Job in my personal devotions. There in the beginning of that book, Job saw the goodness of God despite the trials that he faced. He sinned not with his mouth. But by the end of that book, he was starting to question somewhat the goodness of God. He was beginning to wonder exactly what God was up to and struggle with the fact that he was going through those trials. Certainly when we face trials, there are times when we might question whether God is good, but let us settle this in our minds and hearts tonight. This is a bedrock truth. God is good, always. There is no question about it. That is the kind of truth that you can build your life on, It is the kind of truth that will give you a foundation when everything is shaking around you. God is good. And because of that, we ought to give thanks to him. No matter what circumstances are facing you, you can find the goodness of God in the midst of those circumstances. Not only is he good, but we are told in every verse of this psalm that we ought to give thanks to God because... His mercy endureth forever. His mercy is the fact that he withholds judgment. We rightfully deserve the judgment of God. We rightfully deserve to face consequences for our sin. We rightfully deserve to take upon ourselves the condemnation that we have earned because of our rebellion against God. 
But praise the Lord, we have a merciful God. And his mercy is a mercy that stretches on and on and on, and it endures forever. So there's a declaration of God's enduring mercy. Then, in the main part of the psalm, from verses 5 through 22, the psalmist begins to display God's enduring mercy. And what he's doing, primarily, is he is calling to mind some of the wonderful works that God has done. He highlights several aspects of the works of God. In verses 5 through 9, he talks about the fact that God is a creator and that he has made all of these things, and this showcases his mercy. In verses 10 through 20, he speaks about the fact that God is a deliverer, and he goes back in the history of the nation of Israel, and he highlights how God has delivered the nation of Israel time and time and time again, and this shows the mercy of God. Finally, in verses 21 through 22, he highlights the fact that God is a provider, and not only did he deliver his people from destruction, but then he heaped upon them blessings in the land, and he gave them a heritage. So let's consider these one at a time. First of all, in verses 5 through 9, he speaks about the fact that God is the creator. And in the creation of the world around us, we see the enduring mercy of God. For instance, in verse 5, it speaks about the wisdom of God by which he made the heavens. The heavens are a marvelous thing. If you It probably won't work tonight to go out and look up into the sky. You won't see much except clouds probably. But on a clear night, if you go out and you look up into the heavens and you see the stars and the pattern of the heavenly bodies, and then as scientists study those heavenly bodies, they begin to realize that all of those heavenly bodies move like a giant clock with great predictability and and with precision and You can expect exactly where a planet is going to be at a certain time and where this this star is going to be at a certain time. And it's no mistake that God, as the Creator, designed all of that and put it all in its place as a demonstration of the fact that He is a wise God. And when we look up into the heavens, we see God's wisdom on display. He made the heavens by His wisdom, and this is evidence of his mercy enduring forever. Not only that, in verse 6, it says he stretched out the earth above the waters. And that's an interesting description, which makes us think that there's a lot of water under the ground that we stand on. Uh, There's a lot of water table that's underneath. And of course, we know that during the great flood, The Bible says that the fountains of the deep were opened up and there was water that not only water that came from above down to the earth, but water that gushed up from inside the earth and began to flood over the land. It's God who set this earth on the waters and he designed the the agreement between the land and the water and he put all of this in place to remind us of his enduring mercy. For instance, in another place, the scriptures tell us that he is the one who puts the boundaries for where the water can come to and where the water will not pass. 
He's the one who puts those boundaries there and says the water stays over there and the land is over here. And we're reminded of that whenever there are great storms. Not only did he stretch out the earth above the waters, but verse 7 tells us he made the great lights. And the great lights that are referred to in verse 7 are the sun and the moon. And of course we know that the moon and uh, the moon in particular reflects the light from the sun. We know that at the same time that the moon is displayed in the evening sky or in the night sky, there are also other stars that are farther out that twinkle in the heavens that we see. And we know that God is the one who made all of these great lights. When you look up into the sky, you ought to marvel at the creative handiwork of your God. In fact, the Bible tells us that he spoke these things into existence. And in another place, we're told that this is the work of his fingers. This is the majesty of our God and the great power of our God that he could make all of these things with no effort at all on his part. The great lights that he made, according to verse 8 and 9, verse 8, he says that the sun rules by the day. Aren't you thankful for the sun? I'm grateful when the sun shines. Now, I, I was saying to, to Joel tonight, we were standing out front, and I said, I, I don't want to complain about the rain because we've needed it so badly, but it is kind of dreary this evening. It's a little bit cloudy, and maybe it's uh, pressing down on our spirits a little bit. It sure is nice to see the sun and to enjoy the warmth, and then we find out things like the sun even provides us with important nutrients like vitamin D that we need for our body's function. And you say, well, that's just coincidental. I don't think it's coincidental at all. I think that God put all of that together and the sun rules by the day. And then the moon and the stars, according to verse 9, rule by the night. And it's a remarkable thing on a moonlit night, on a night when there's a full moon, I've been out and it's, it's almost like as bright as during the daytime. It's amazing. Once your eyes adjust and that moon is reflecting the glory of the sun and reflecting it back to the earth, and you think, wow, that's amazing that God would make that, that God would put all of that there. And a lot of the reason, of course, we know that the sun and the moon have so much to do with the gravitational pull on our earth and our seasons and all of these sorts of things. And all of this is by the design of God. And it's a reminder to us when we see the seasons changing, when we see even the day turning into night and the night turning into the morning, and we see these heavenly bodies, we're reminded of the fact that we serve a God who is merciful. His mercy endures forever and he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our thanks. In fact, there ought to be times when your heart is so moved as you see the display of God's omnipotence in creation that you can't help but breathe out a prayer and just say, thank you, God, for all that you provided. Thank you for the beauty of your creation. Thank you for the sun that shines in the day. Thank you for the moon and the stars that display your glory. You ought to talk to your God like that. He is the creator. But also, the display of his enduring mercy is found in the fact that he is the deliverer. Verses 10 through 20 go back through the history of the nation of Israel. 
and recount the story of times that God worked supernaturally to deliver his people from what seemed to be certain destruction. In verse 10, he goes all the way back to when the nation of Israel was in its infancy and was there in the land of Egypt. And God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm going to keep them here. They're my slaves and you can't have them back. And God said, oh, yes, you will let them go. And God began to work. And eventually, he smote Egypt in the firstborn. He, uh, he sent a plague and he killed all of the firstborn of the animals and of the people. And there was a great lamentation in the land. And finally, Pharaoh said, fine, take your people and go. And Moses and the people of God left that place And that was the miraculous work of God. They never thought that they would be able to be delivered from the land of Egypt, but God promised to them that they weren't going to stay there. He promised that He was going to bring them out. And verse 11 says that when He brought them out, He brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand, verse 12, and with a stretched out arm. God was displaying his power. He was displaying his omnipotence as he brought Israel out of Egypt. And he demonstrated not only to Israel, but also to Egypt and to the nations who were around that he is an almighty God and that he can deliver his people. He showed his strong hand, his stretched out arm. Uh, It's the idea of... Uh, if, if you want to picture it this way, he was making a muscle. He was showing how strong he was and he was causing them to admire the fact that he is a strong God, that he is able to keep his promises. Certainly all of this is indicative of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with the descendants of Abraham. And all of this pertains to God being a promise-keeping God. And in fact, he delivered his people with a strong hand and a stretched-out arm. I'm thankful tonight that God's hand is not weakened and his arm is not withdrawn from delivering. But he still has a strong hand and a stretched-out arm. That idea of a stretched-out arm means that he is reaching out to deliver his people He is reaching out to them who cannot deliver themselves. Verse 13 tells us that he is a deliverer, and this was seen when he brought his people to the Red Sea. And you remember how they stood by the side of the Red Sea, and they began to complain and to murmur against Moses, and God told Moses to take that rod, and he he told Moses, I'm going to divide the waters, and in fact... You know, as the people were watching, it seemed as if Moses was the one who was dividing the waters. But it was God who divided the waters. And dramatically in front of their eyes, while the people were shielded from the view of the armies of Pharaoh and of Egypt, uh, God divided those waters and the people went down uh, through and across the Red Sea. Not across some little swampy area, but across the Red Sea in a, in a way that displayed the great power of God. And there's all kinds of interesting things that are found about that today. But that 
is certainly a display of the power of God. And the people never forgot that. They remembered that God is a delivering God. Verse 14, He made Israel to pass through the midst of it. I think about what that must have been like as you walk down into what used to be the sea and down across the sea, the seabed and you see the waters up there and you realize that God is holding them up and God is directing you across What a moment of worship it must have been as they saw the power of God on display. He made Israel pass through the midst of it. And oh then, just as they were getting to the other side, God removed that cloud so that Pharaoh and his army could see. And they said, let's go get them. And they went down into the sea to follow them. And God said, never mind, let's let the sea go right back where it was. And the sea washed back into its, into its seabed and slew the army of Pharaoh and his host, overthrew them. One of the most powerful armies in the history of the world was completely destroyed in a moment by the hand of God. If you think there's any army that can stand against God today, you better think again. Our God is still victorious. He made Israel to pass through the midst and he overthrew Pharaoh and his host. Then he got his people over to the other side. And in verse 16, he is the strong God which led his people through the wilderness. Now I want you to think for just a moment about feeding a million people every day in the middle of a desert, in a place where there is no food. We would be hard-pressed to feed a million people. We had a fellowship on Sunday. Could you imagine if a million people showed up, Sam? As it was, we had a few more folks than we were expecting. We weren't expecting quite so many people to be here on Sunday. And, oh boy, you have to figure out how to provide and how to make sure you have enough food. That was just uh, just a little shy of 400 people on Sunday that was here. Can you imagine a million And yet God, leading his people through the wilderness, fed them every day, provided them with water, cared for them in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't have fields. They didn't have uh, any place where they were growing crops. They were moving from one place to another. A million people can pick the landscape pretty bare, even in a place where there's a lot of crops growing in a short amount of time. But God took them through there, and day by day, he proved to his people, I can care for you, I can meet your needs, I can direct you, I'm taking you somewhere. By the way, it was only because of their sin that it took 40 years for them to go through the wilderness. If they'd only obeyed the Lord, he would have brought them through the wilderness much sooner, but had to wait for that first generation to pass away and the second generation to grow up. And then God said, now it's time to go into the land. And in verse 18, he smote great kings. We read the book of Joshua and we don't realize that these kings, these these powerful kings who ruled these city-states were men who were feared and revered. And yet, these mighty kings quaked at the thought of the power of God. Do you remember what Rahab told the spies when they got to Jericho? We're shut up here in fear. We've heard about how your God 
divided the sea and how he's how he's cared for you and met your needs. And we just know that we can't stand against the power of this God. And in fact, they could not stand against the power of Jehovah. God slew famous kings, kings like Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, who are mentioned in verses 19 and 20, powerful kings, kings who were rulers over their people, but they were no match for the power of God. Even today, there is no king, no president, no prime minister, no dictator who is any match for the strength of our God. Our God is omnipotent. He slew these famous kings, Sihon and Og and others, and he did it for a reason. Because verse 21 says that he not only is a creator... And he is a deliverer, but he also is a provider. And what God was doing as he slew these famous kings was city by city, region by region, victory by victory, Jehovah God was giving his people a land that was prepared for them. He was giving them cities that were already built, houses that had been constructed, fields that had been planted, crops that were ready to harvest. They were moving into a blessed promised land and all of this was the work of God. It was God providing for them and giving the land of these kings that were driven out to his own people and saying, this now is your heritage. This land belongs to the people of Israel This is an heritage unto Israel, his servant. You see, as long as Israel remembered that they were the servant of Jehovah, as long as they remembered who it was that put them where they were, they were fine. They were blessed. They were provided for. God cared for their needs. It wasn't until they began to think, we got this for ourselves. We, we, we did all of this, and this is all of ours, and it has nothing to do with God, that God had to remind them of who he was. You see, our God is the creator, the deliverer, and the provider. This is the display of his enduring mercy. And certainly for the Israelites, as they look back on their history and thought about the goodness and the omnipotence, the omnipotence of God displayed in his mighty works towards them, they could revel in the goodness of God towards them. Now we come down to verses 23 through 26, and there's a reprise. And in this reprise, the psalmist mentions the delight of God's enduring mercy. Three thoughts that are found in verse 23, 24, and 25. First of all, he says in verse 23 that Jehovah remembered us in our low estate. Tonight, you and I can delight in the enduring mercy of God. If you are saved tonight, then I want you just for a moment to delight in this fact. He remembered me. He remembered me. On a planet of 8 billion people, he looked down. And he remembered me. And he remembered you. You see, 
I'm not a social security number to Jehovah God. I'm not a speck on the planet. I am a person. A person who is valued. A person who is remembered. It's remarkable that the God who has so much power is so concerned about little old me and little old you. He remembered us. Tonight, it's a wonderful thought to think that he's remembered us. Not only did he remember us, but verse 24, he hath redeemed us from our enemies. And certainly he had redeemed Israel. He had bought them back. But tonight, as a child of God, I want you to think for just a moment and delight in this truth. Not only did he remember you and reach out to you, but if you're saved, you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Tonight, our redemption has been secured with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ And we can say with great delight, not only has he remembered me, but he has redeemed me. He bought me back from my sin. I deserved destruction. I deserved punishment. I deserved damnation. But he gave me justification. He gave me redemption. He gave me deliverance. He gave me all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. He has redeemed me. Then verse 25, who giveth food to all flesh. Not only has he remembered me and redeemed me, but he provides for me. Now, God is so good that he provides food abundantly for all flesh. That's a remarkable truth in and of itself. That the earth is so abundant and so rich that it brings forth food so that all can eat but especially his people he cares for. He provides for our needs. And this is the grace of God. I know the theme here is his mercy, but you think about God's abundance that he pours out upon us, that not only has he forgiven us, not only has he put our sin away, not only has he covered our sin, but he also says, now I want to pour out upon you a great blessing. I want to give you everything that you need and And then some. I want to just abundantly bless you and give you more and more and more of the riches that are in Christ Jesus. He provides for us. He cares for us. And just for a moment, I want you to delight in God's provision for you. Do you see his provision in your life? Do you see his care for you? Do you see that he's given you even more than just salvation from your sins and deliverance from the destruction that you've earned for yourself. But then he heaps upon us these blessings. He daily loadeth us with blessings. He's a good God. And we ought to delight in his enduring mercy. Which brings the psalmist to the conclusion in verse 26. And he cries out again a repetition of the thought in verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven. For his mercy endureth forever. You say, I don't have anything to thank God for. Oh, you have everything to thank God for. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Tonight, the God of heaven ought to be thanked. 
and he ought to be praised because tonight his mercy endureth forever.